So we come into the Dharma with great enthusiasm and probably a lot of expectations that we aren't consciously aware of. And at the beginning, that enthusiasm and those expectations uh, keep us going. And then at a certain point, we have to put our feet on the ground and see what the situation actually is. And at that time, some people get discouraged or, uh, yeah, disillusioned. Actually, nothing in the path has changed. The only thing that's changed is our mind and our level of joyous effort. So when, if, if and when we see our joyous effort kind of slacking, it's important to take steps to rejuvenate it and uh, get it going again without necessarily relying on something external to do that for us. Although sometimes going to a teaching or seeing our teachers can and stimulate us in that way. But to learn also how to work with our own mind and encourage ourselves so that uh, we leave aside the expectations, we stop focusing so much on the goals, and we start enjoying the process. And when we enjoy the process, then there's a much deeper sense of uh, peace and comfort. So we are the ones who have to make the adjustments in our own mind to uh, keep ourselves going. Although, like I said, talking to other practitioners or being with our teachers or whatever can certainly help that. And over time also, our sense of what it means to work for the benefit of all sentient beings changes. And again, here sometimes people just go, oh my goodness, it's way too much. But if you look at it in another way, but an incredible opportunity to be able to transform ourselves into fully awakened Buddhas. And at Buddhahood, and also as we progress along the path, what was difficult and seemingly impossible initially becomes uh, quite normal and easy and not at all uh, anxiety-producing later on. So to remember that and... Uh, let ourselves grow. Because what other thing could be more wonderful than working for the benefit of living beings?
Okay, so I think we were in the middle of the chapter about um, interfaith. And so His Holiness talking about uh, really appreciating other uh, traditions, how important it is to be open-minded and realizing uh, realize that what is best for us may not be what is best for other people. And so allowing for this diversity in uh, religious uh, practices, religious uh, tenets, okay, uh, that allow everybody to hopefully find something that makes sense them, to them that will encourage them to uh, really use their potential and to be a benefit to themselves and others. Okay, so now His Holiness continues, and he says, Although all religions have similar purpose and similar values, we must not blur the distinctions. We do not need to say that our beliefs are the same in order to get along. We can note and respect the differences, knowing that due to the diversity of religions, everyone will be able to find a faith that suits them. Okay, so I remember hearing a story of His Holiness when he was with one of the um, Catholic or Anglican fathers that he was uh, good friends with. And uh, as I heard it, they were in Bodhaya, and the, the priest, I can't remember his name, that His Holiness was quite good friends with him, was saying, uh, you know, all the religions come to the same point. We really don't have any differences. And His Holiness stopped him and said, no, we, we do have differences, yeah. Uh, but we, that doesn't, the fact that we have differences doesn't mean that we can't get along. It doesn't mean that we have to ha say one is better than the other, okay? But he said we shouldn't blur the differences and just say, well, it's all the same, because it may not be, you know? And, uh, you know, for example, people ask me, uh, can, you know, can you get enlightened by uh, practicing Judaism or Christianity or Islam or Hinduism. And so I don't claim to, um, my, my inner, well, put it, okay. What I say to people is it depends if uh, that faith teaches emptiness. Yeah? If it teaches emptiness, the ultimate nature, uh, and that wisdom that can eliminate the ignorance, that's the source of all of our dukkha, then yes, anybody who practices that religion, uh, even if it's not called Buddhism, can uh, become awakened. Okay. But the thing is to check if other religions actually teach emptiness or not. Okay, According to the checking that I've made, which is superficial, I haven't seen that at all, okay? But I don't want to say that directly to other people because that could be quite discouraging and offensive to them. So I just say, actually, what is the truth, which is if another faith teaches emptiness, 
you know, and the, how to generate the wisdom realizing it, and the union of serenity and insight, then people practicing it can become awakened. Okay? And then I let them decide for themselves and examine that themselves. Okay. Okay. But, you know, I think what His Holiness is saying is, you know, we do have to say that there are differences. Um, we may not be able to say exactly what the differences are because one religion may use certain terms to describe a principle that is has another set of terms in another religion, but the two descriptions match. You know, it's just the terminology is different. Uh, and you might have things where uh, they use the same words, but the meanings are very different. Okay, so we have to really look at that, the meaning there. But we can all have different views and still get along. Yeah, it's, it's funny how people want, they don't feel comfortable with that. It's like, no, we've all got to hold the same view. We've got to say all religions are the same. You know, because if we don't say that, then we're going to quarrel. Yeah. And it's an interesting presupposition, yeah, is it, is it that, uh, you know, that it pervades that if two religions are different, then they're going to quarrel. Yeah. So how many P is that? <laughs> 3P, 4P, MX, MI. You know, so this is where your debating uh, skill can come in and uh, really check these kind of assertions. Mm -hmm. uh, in our interfaith discussions, investigating the meaning of words and concepts is important. Sometimes we hastily conclude that because the words are the same, their meaning is also. The meaning of blessing, for example, is not the same in Buddhism as in theistic religions. Conversely, we may think that because traditions use different vocabulary, their meanings are unrelated, although that may not be the case. Okay, so don't rely on the words, look at the meaning. More contact and communication among religious leaders, as well as among their followers, are uh, are needed to promote mutual understanding and harmony. I suggest four activities in this regard. First, religious and theological scholars should meet to discuss points of similarity and difference among faiths. This will promote awareness of the similar purposes of all religion and respect for their doctrinal differences. At a, okay, so he's talking here about scholars, talking about theology. At an interfaith meeting in Australia, a Christian introduced me and concluded by saying the Dalai Lama is a very good Christian practitioner. When I spoke, I thanked him for his kind words and commented that he was a good Buddhist. <laughs> in addition... Uh, one of my friends tells me I'm a, uh, I'm a very good Zen teacher. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why, but he says that. In addition, practitioners of various faiths should meet 
to talk, pray, and meditate together. So the first one was about scholars. This one is about practitioners. This will bring deeper experiences that lead to seeing the value of other religions. Furthermore, people can go on pilgrimages together, not as tourists, but to visit and pray together at the holy places of different religions. Wouldn't that be cool to do? Yeah. In this way, they were experientially realized the value of other religions. Last, religious leaders should come together and pray and speak about remedying problems in the world and allow the media to cover the event. When citizens of the world see religious leaders working harmoniously together, they will feel more hopeful and will become more tolerant themselves. And that is a big thing, you know, because the leaders really model the feeling for the followers. And so to get the leaders together, especially to talk about certain world issues and to speak as uh, a group of religious uh, followers, you know, from various traditions, that is a very, very strong message, you know. So, of course, you know, people are going to have different views um, on different social issues. But at least, uh, I mean, I think climate change is one that everybody can agree with. You know, abortion, birth control, that's another issue, okay? But climate change, everybody can agree with that. Honesty in, um, among governments and leaders you know, a sense of integrity with those who are leading the world uh, in, and honesty in the uh, field of business. You know, these are things that all the religions can speak together as a whole about and really stress. And I think that is, uh, that's very good and we need a lot of that. Bishop Tutu, whom I admire greatly, suggested a fifth practice. Religion should speak in a united voice on issues of global concern, such as wealth, inequality, human rights, the environment, and disarmament. I support this as well. An important element in religious harmony is mutual respect, which entails refraining from aggressive attempts at conversion. As mentioned in Chapter 1, when I give lectures on Buddhist topics in the West, I tell people that they should follow their family religion unless it it does not suit their needs. The same is true in countries that have traditionally been Buddhist. The people there should remain Buddhist unless it does not suit them. In Mongolia, China, Korea, and some other Buddhist countries, like Singapore, Christian missionaries have strongly promoted their religion. I heard that in Mongolia, some churches give people $50 when they convert. Some Mongolians are apparently quite savvy and get baptized multiple times. (laughs) Okay. But this is not what we should be doing, you know. And Buddhism is not a faith that tries to convert people. But we need to be able to stand up when people come into our communities and try and convert people. Yeah, because it totally tears families apart. 
know, especially if people convert to a religion where that says, you know, we're the only one, we're the right one, everybody else is going to hell. If you have one family member who converts to a religion that like that and then starts telling their mother and father and whoever else is in the family, you know, you're going to hell, Other, you know, so you have to convert. It be, it really is. It's awful for, for, uh, for peace in the family. Yeah, and I've seen this too much. It's really not good. Yeah. And like I told you the story of my student who was dying in Singapore. Yeah. And the doctor's trying to convert him on the deathbed. Totally inappropriate. Sometimes it is necessary to say frankly to others that their attempts to convert others are harmful. It causes friction in families, especially when one family member converts and pressures the others to do the same. On one occasion, some missionaries came to see me, and I candidly told them not to try to convert people in traditionally Buddhist countries because it creates discord and confusion in society. Once, some Mormons invited me to their headquarters and arranged for me to give a public talk in Salt Lake City. Here, too, I frankly said, doing missionary work among people who do not follow a religion with a philosophical basis is fine, especially if they perform animal sacrifices or other harmful uh, practices. So if um, if you have missionaries sent out to people who don't practice, uh, who don't follow any particular religion or, uh, you know, that has a good philosophical base or if people are doing harmful practices, okay, you know, trying to convert those people and giving them a, a good set of ethical uh, principles to follow, that's fine. Yeah. However, in places where the population follows their own traditional religion that has an ethical and philosophical basis, it is not good to proselytize. Maintaining harmony in society is far more important. Okay, then incorporating practices from other religions. Changing religion is a serious matter that should not be taken lightly. Some people prefer to follow the religion of their birth, yet find it helpful to incorporate certain methods from other traditions into their own spiritual practice. While remaining deeply committed to their own faith, some of my Christian friends practice techniques for cultivating meditative concentration that they learned from Buddhism. They also use methods such as visualizations that enhance compassion and meditations to strengthen fortitude and forgiveness. This does not interfere with their refuge in God. Okay? Just because so much of Buddha's teachings really are common sense, you don't have to have the philosophical basis of emptiness and dependent arising in order to use those techniques and apply those principles. And so that is, those kinds of things, it's fine to, to teach people. It's very helpful. Yeah. Similarly, Buddhists may learn and incorporate some aspects of Christian teachings into their own practice. 
One clear example is in the area of community work, and he stresses this a lot. Christian monastics have a long history of social work, particularly in education and health care, areas in which the Buddhist community lags behind. One of my friends, a German Buddhist, told me after he visited Nepal that over the last 40 or 50 years, Tibetan lamas have constructed many large monasteries. However, they have built very few hospitals and schools for the public. He observed that if Christians had constructed new monasteries, they would include schools and hospitals for the general population. In response to his observation, we Buddhists can only hang our heads and agree that he is right. And it's true. We tend to build big monasteries and big statues, expensive things, yeah, uh, but not do things for uh, that serve the public. Yeah? And His Holiness is saying we really need to reach out more in this way. Um, I, I talked to one of my Tibetan friends about this and, and asked her why in Tibetan society they don't have uh, social institutions, you know, and safety nets things and this kind of stuff. And she said, because in old Tibet, the family unit was very, very strong. So if somebody couldn't work or they were injured or they were sick, they didn't need to go to an external governmentally set up um, hospital or get a social worker because the family just automatically took care of their own. Yeah. As we know in the West, the family doesn't do that. And sometimes in the West also, the family can't afford it, even if they want to. In Tibet, the, their family thing isn't just a nuclear family, so that if the parents have financial problems, you know, the kids are left out. When they talk, they have cousins and brothers and sisters and all over the place. It's just amazing, you know, and they're all considered part of the family. Yeah. So uh, somebody may refer to somebody as their brother, but they're really their cousin. Yeah. And then if you ask them, well, exactly how are you related? Well, it's my cousin's wife's brother's niece, you know, like this kind of thing. And they're all part of one family. So when you have a large extent, expanded family like that, if one nuclear family, you know, is poor, the rest of the extended family takes care of them. So she, my friend was telling me so, that in old Tibet, they didn't need these kind of social institutions, okay? As far as schools, the monastery was the school. And, you know, if you didn't learn to read and write, you worked in the fields, you did manual labor, that was fine. You know, you didn't need to, to learn, uh, you know, reading and writing. And in fact, they didn't, many of the monks didn't want to learn writing. They wanted to learn reading. Everybody in the monastery could read. But they didn't want to learn to write because if you wrote then the central Tibetan government could ask you to come and work for them. 
writing things. And Tibetan is very difficult to write because they have a lot of silent letters. So if you never learned all of that, then they didn't want you to come and, and write in the government because you would misspell stuff. Yeah, but if you learn that, then there was the threat of being taken out of the monastery and, uh, you know, uh, having to go work in the government. <clears throat> so, uh, you know, coming into exile, uh, His Holiness really started to change things because the Tibetan children's village, um, one of his, his older sister, I think, um, she set it up within a few years of them coming out uh, into India. Yeah, and so they started having more social institutions. For a long time, it was just the Tibetan children's village. Then they built an old folks' home on the backside of the Korwa path around His Holiness's palace. In Mongot, there's an old folks' home. Um, the, they're beginning to have schools inside the monasteries, but that's only for the, the little monks. Yeah. Uh, there are some government, Indian government schools. A lot of the young monks and nuns and the regular children in the village go to those. You know, but they, you know, a lot more, I think, could be done in that area. The monasteries in, in recent years have started to have clinics. You know, at first they were very poor. They, there's no way they could do it. And also they didn't know anything about uh, sanitation, in fact, they knew like minus 10 about sanitation. <laughs> now it's it's beginning to improve uh, thanks to donations by Westerners and also by uh, Chinese disciples. And so, uh, you know, they're beginning to set up hospitals in the monasteries. I don't know how much those serve the community. I'm not sure. Okay. But certainly in the West, this is is something that, uh, you know, would be very, very helpful to do. In Singapore, the, the centers do a lot of it. You know, they have some Buddhist schools. They have some Buddhist kindergartens. Um, like I told you, I lived in an old folks' home. The, one part was the temple. Another part was the old folks' home. So they, they have more of these kind of projects. And the young people often go uh, and, and do volunteer work in these kinds of things, which is really nice. Yeah. And one place where we're going in Malaysia, the Tianxiang Temple, that's the one with the... Uh, we're going there again uh, with the old folks' home and also the, the kindergarten. Okay. <clears throat> Some of my Christian friends have taken serious interest in the Buddhist philosophy of emptiness. I have told them that since the theory of emptiness is unique to Buddhism, it may not be wise for them to look into it deeply. Doing so may cause difficulties in their Christian practice. Because if they pursue the theory of emptiness and dependent arising that underlies the Buddhist worldview, it challenges the worldview founded upon belief in an absolute, independent, eternal creator. Adopting the Buddhist idea of emptiness would harm their deep faith in God, and this would not benefit them. 
When we are beginning spiritual practitioners, it is good to develop a sense of reverence for the teachers of all religious traditions. At the beginning of our spiritual path, we can be uh, both a practicing Buddhist and a practicing Christian or Jew. However, as we go further into spiritual practice, we reach a point where we need to accept one philosophical view and deepen our understanding of that. This is similar to new university students benefiting from studying many subjects, but at a later point choosing to major in one. Okay, so at the beginning, when you come to Buddhism, yeah, you can, uh, you know, you can still be, uh, you know, a Jew boo or a Christian boo or, a, you know, <laughs> or a, a Hindu boo or, you know, and and it's fine, you know, just incorporating things. And uh, uh, I've <laughs> one time somebody uh, this many years ago. Uh, it was 1977, I remember it quite vividly. Um, somebody asked Lama Zopa, you know, and said, I'm Jewish, but I really like practicing Buddhism, and I like some of the Buddhist things. Can, can I be Jewish and Buddhist at the same time? And Rinpoche said, I'm a Jewish Buddhist. <laughs> We don't need to, you know, get people all uptight about this. But at a certain point, you know, you have to figure out what you really believe in because you can't believe in an independent, eternal God and also assert emptiness. You know, the, those two views just don't, uh, they can't coincide. They're not complementary. You know, so at a certain point, like His Holiness says, you have to major in one topic. You have to, you know, choose the religion that you're going to go deeply into. <clears throat> yeah? So somebody is a Christian and could take refuge in the um, Buddha Dhamma Sangha. Mm. Okay, when this question comes up, Okay, this, the usual answer, according to the scriptures, is uh, if you believe in God, no, actually it isn't suitable for you to take refuge in the Buddha Dharma Sangha, you know, because the two refuges don't, don't coincide. But His Holiness, because he teaches very broadly and to big audiences of people who are interested in who benefit from the Buddhist teachings, yeah, when he uh, often gives refuge and precepts at the end of those teachings, he says to those people, if you would like to do it, you know, and take refuge and take the precepts, it's fine, because he sees that it helps them. But he doesn't hold them to... Uh, you know, okay, now you, don't, you can't take refuge in anybody else. You're a Buddhist now, and you've just got to believe in Buddha Dharma Sangha. So what His Holiness does for large groups of people is different in, in a public place with people who aren't Buddhist is going to be different than what he does with a smaller group of people who are already Buddhists. Okay? You know, the same way... Uh, with the the precept of uh, the fifth precept of not taking alcoholic beverages, okay. So the standard precept is 
not one drop. That's the way the Buddha said it. His Holiness is speaking to 5,000, 10,000, 20,000 people. Yeah. And if, if he makes that the bar, then a lot of people won't, won't take it. And he figures that it's better for them to, to take the precept with uh, the precept meaning that you just reduce what you're taking than to not take it at all. So he tells the story about Kyabje uh, Ling Rinpoche when somebody asked, uh, told Kyabje Ling Rinpoche he wanted to take the five precepts, uh, but he just couldn't take the fifth one because he he had to have a little bit of alcohol every once in a while. Or, you know, he liked to drink alcohol. You know, the usual thing is relaxing, blah, blah. And uh, this was a Tibetan saying that to, to Ling Rinpoche. And Ling Rinpoche responded, okay, you can take the precept, but just drink less. Okay? So in that way, he gave the man something that he could actually do. He has the precept about not taking intoxicants, but it's just taking less than what he took before. So when His Holiness is talking to huge, enormous groups of people, you know, where he really wants people to think about taking intoxicant, diminishing how much intoxicants they take, then when he gives the precepts, he gives the fifth precept that way. Yeah. I deal with much smaller groups of people, and so I give the precept, and it's very clear, not one drop, nothing. Okay. So different teachers will give it in different ways according to, you know, their own feeling and who they're dealing with and so on. Okay. Uh, from the viewpoint of an individual who is going deeper into their spiritual path, practicing one religion is important. However, from the perspective of society at large, it is important to adhere to the principle of many religions and many truths. Okay, so you see here, you know, he's always talking about this, what is good for the general public and what is good for an individual. Yeah, what you say to the big group of people, what you say to an individual. At first glance, these two concepts, one truth, one religion, versus many truths, many religions, seem uh, uh, contradictory. However, if we examine them carefully, we see that each is correct in its own context. From the perspective of an individual spiritual practitioner, the concept of one truth and one religion is valid. You've got to choose one thing and go into depth in it, and you can't hold contradictory beliefs, else otherwise you're not going to get anywhere. But from the viewpoint of wider society, the concept of many truths and many religions is cogent. There is no contradiction. Truth must be understood and defined in relation to the context. Even within one religion, such as Buddhism, we speak of two truths, yeah, veiled and ultimate. And we have all these different tenant systems, and they all say different things. And different Buddhists practice different tenant systems, you know. And so what are you going to go around, you know, well, we're Prasangika, it's the best. Why? Well, because my teacher said so. 
You know, well, because dependent arising and emptiness are not contradictory. Well, what in the world does that mean? And the person goes, I just know the words, but I can't explain the meaning to you. You know, versus somebody else who maybe has different, uh, maybe holds the Yogacharya view or the Satantrika view, but, you know, it really affects their mind. Uh, you know, the, those philosophical views and how they define selflessness. Okay. Next section is a non-sectarian approach. In the past, sectarianism has created many problems and harmed both individuals and the Buddhist community. It arose mainly due to the lack of personal contact among practitioners of different Buddhist traditions, leading to lack of correct information about each other's doctrines and practices. Unfortunately, in recent years, it has spread to international practitioners and Dharma centers as well. Now, with better means of transportation and communication, practitioners from diverse traditions can learn about each other and meet together easily. So... This thing about sectarianism is is really a problem, and um, you know it exists among Tibetans, and so it got imported to the West. You know, even though everybody says we shouldn't be sectarian, it exists. Okay, um, and and so. Yeah, you can find it in all sorts of places. And unfortunately, the Westerners have, have picked it up. So I think many of you have heard me talk about the time when I went into one uh, Dharma center, one retreat center, and the first question they asked me is, are you Nyingma Kargyu or Sakya? And I said, I'm Buddhist. And he was like, shocked, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but which one are you? And I just said, I'm a Buddhist. And then he took me around, you know, and we went into the kitchen. And the first question the person in the kitchen asked me is, are you Nyingma Kargyukalu or Sakya? And the guy who was taking me around said, she said she's Buddhist. <laughs> but they didn't know what to do with me. Yeah. So, uh, and that's just within Tibetan Buddhism, you know, the sectarianism within Tibetan Buddhism. Then you have the jockeying between the monasteries in, uh, within uh, each of the sect. And then you look at the West, and Alex points this out a lot. How many Galu uh, centers do you have in one city? How many Kargyu centers in one city? Nyingma centers, Sakya centers in one city. Yeah? Why is it that even within one tradition, each monastery or each teacher within each monastery has to have their own Buddhist center? They can't make one. They all have to have their own center. Yeah, have you noticed this at all in places where you've lived? Yeah? I mean, in Seattle, 
Well, many different centers. Singapore, tons of different centers. But they're all from the, the same tradition. Yeah. It, and it happens the same within Theravada. You know, you, uh, you know, in one town in the West now, you know, you can have Burmese and a few Thai temples and, you know, and, you know, lots of different temples, even from the same country or the, the same organization. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's just interesting to notice that. If people get along, that's okay. But, you know, sometimes there's this jockeying for uh, students or jockeying for resources. Yeah, uh, people don't want their students to go to other centers and, and so on. Yeah. Yeah, some places I've gone to teach, they, they've invited me to teach, but they say, please don't bring Abbey brochures. Yeah, we don't want, you know, they can't say it, but the meaning is they don't want their students giving their money to the Abbey. They prefer their students making donations to their own centers, or they're afraid that you're going to take their, their students away. Yeah. It's kind of sad when, when that happens. Um, but a more disturbing kind of sectarianism is when people really hold wrong views about the other traditions. You know, it's one thing to be possessive of your, your own students. It's another one to have blatantly wrong views about other religions and not... Uh, and spread those kind of wrong views, you know? So I think you've heard me. <laughs> I talk about this a lot when I, when I hear people do that. When I was in Singapore, you, well, you have the standard things, okay? So the Theravadas think that Chinese Buddhists, Tibetan Buddhists, and they're Mahayana, so they don't really practice the Buddhist teachings. Yeah. So they're the real ones who practice Buddhism. The others aren't really Buddhist. The Mahayanas look at the Theravadas and say, those people are selfish. You know, they just want to aim for arhatship. They don't appreciate Buddhahood. So they're selfish. Okay. Then among the Chinese and the Tibetans, the Chinese think that the Tibetans do magic and that they're all drinking and they're all having sex together because they practice Tantra. Okay, and the and the Tibetans think that the Chinese just do blank-minded meditation. Okay, and so these are the kind of things that have been passed down from one generation to the other, because people haven't had contact with each other. Yeah, and now the nice thing about uh, more uh, transportation and communication is that you can meet people who actually practice from these other traditions and then you get a correct idea of what they practice. So that's why I'm so glad that both of you have come to stay with us, you know, because we learn from each other and we see that we are all Buddhists and the way that we practice is basically the same and that we can do each other's practices and feel quite quite okay about it. It's not contradictory in any way. 
Huh? And then you also learn that we're not drinking alcohol all the time and going around having sex with men, you know? So you can report that back to the Chinese and Vietnamese community. <laughs> but these are the kinds of, you know, misunderstandings that get passed down, you know? So it's, it's really important to clarify these kinds of things, you know, because... If you criticize another tradition, you're actually criticizing the Buddha's teachings. Yeah, because all these traditions come from the Buddha. So if you criticize another Buddha's tradition, you're criticizing the Buddha, you're criticizing the Dharma, you know, instead of having this open mind that, you know, that the Buddha taught a variety of things for a variety of people. Okay, sectarianism can take many forms. Sometimes it is motivated by jealousy or conceit. You know, my traditions, better, you know, or uh, we're jealous of you because you have bigger, nicer monasteries, so we're going to criticize you for something else because we're actually jealous because you have more wealth than we do. Okay, I mean, this is human beings. You know, it doesn't matter what religion you are. Yeah, I was raised Jewish, so in any town, yeah, that has, you, you can't just have one Jewish synagogue. You've got to have at least two Jewish synagogues, the one you go to and the one you don't go to. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so I think it's probably the same in Christianity and Catholicism among, you know, I mean, how many different tra Christian traditions are there? And do they even speak to each other? That's the difference. You talk to each other. You knew you weren't going there. You didn't even talk to each other. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, okay. Oh, okay, so, yeah, so other times uh, sectarianism is done with compassion, in quotations, uh, telling students that they will get confused if they go to other teachings or that other traditions are preliminaries to their own higher, more exalted, purer teachings that are the real correct ones, okay, Sometimes sectarianism arises due to ignorance in which someone believes he understands another system but in fact uh, does not comprehend it correctly. Some people are prejudiced against other traditions or teachers due to a misdirected sense of loyalty to their own teacher or tradition. So you find this as well. Um, yeah, within the, the Tibetan monasteries, if, uh, yeah, I mean, if you go to one, you are loyal to your monastery. I remember talking with Jeffrey one, one time about this kind of, uh, you know, if you study with teachers from a particular monastery, then they expect you to follow their monastery's yigcha, uh, bring donations to their monastery, 
do all of this kind of, of thing. And I asked, uh, I, this was years ago, I asked Jeffrey, you know, what does he think about it? And, you know, what does he do? And he says, I just ignore it. <laughs> you know, if there's a good teacher, I go. I don't ignore all the, ex he said, I just ignore all the expectations, you know. Misunderstandings that lead to sectarianism may arise when comments made in relation to a specific individual are generalized for everyone at times, at all times. Milarepa's demeaning remarks about scholars were the former. Okay, so comments made in relation to a specific individual uh, are generated to, um, to, to everybody. So Milarepa was speaking about specific people who lived at that time and did not mean that all scholars did not practice purely or that being a scholar was worthless. So Milarepa, in his songs, he often made fun of scholars, you know, telling them that they knew a lot of words, but, the, you know, their words couldn't, couldn't help them at all, you know, because they didn't practice. But... He wasn't criticizing whole other Buddhist traditions that where people study a lot, and he wasn't criticizing everybody who studies. You know, he was just pointing out to the specific people who came to him who said, you know, oh, you're all green because you eat nettles and you're skinny and, you know, you don't have a big, beautiful temple. Um, you know, you don't know anything, and then... but. Milarepa actually was quite highly realized. Okay, if people misunderstand and think that all study of the scriptures is a waste of time, that will create friction between Buddhists who study a lot and those who don't. It'll harm the existence of the Buddha Dharma in the world, and it will inhibit individuals who want to learn. Okay, so we have to realize he was talking about to specific individuals there. The only solution to sectarianism is to study and practice other Buddhist traditions in addition to our own and to develop a broad understanding of all the Buddha's teachings. Instead of identifying with a specific tradition, we should consider ourselves simply Buddhists. After all, when we take refuge, it is in the same three jewels not in a specific Buddhist tradition or teacher. And this is something many people don't in the West don't realize. They think you take refuge in that teacher or with that Dharma center or in that specific tradition. And you don't. You take refuge in the Buddha Dharma Sangha. You know, a teacher gave you the refuge ceremony, but your refuge yeah, is in the Buddha Dharma Sangha, and everybody shares that refuge. Okay, and that's very important for people to understand. Otherwise, you know, because I've had people come and say, you know, oh, you know, I took refuge with such and such Lama in this tradition, but I'd really like to renew my refuge here at the Abbey. But can I do that? Because I took refuge in, you know, Nima, Kargi, whatever it was, or I took refuge in that teacher. So can I do that? And of course, yeah. So we take refuge in the three jewels. 
Let me just finish this paragraph, okay? Uh, you may still principally follow just one Buddhist traditions, but when but when you need um, clarification in specific areas, learn the details from whichever tradition gives the fullest presentation of that point, and incorporate that explanation into your practice. So search among the different traditions if you need uh, an expanded. Um, explanation of a point and see who has that explanation. I was just wondering if this mistake about thinking you're taking refuge in a center or something like that is just more something here, not so much in Asia. The reason I'm asking is Mm -hmm. because it seems like then there would be more of a case for when we take monastic uh, precepts that we're taking them from the Buddha, not from a particular tradition. Because mm-hmm. it seems like a very, you know, they're, they're precepts, they're pratimoksha precepts. They seem yeah. like they're in the same category, so the same logic should apply. Yeah, the same logic should apply. But you'll find people, they want to get, uh, they want their, their teachers from their own Buddhist tradition to give them the, the ordination. Yeah. So even within Tibetan uh, Buddhism, you know, like our friend um, who just went to Nepal, yeah, to take from Changa Rinpoche, you know, because that's the same tradition that that he practices in. In in old Tibet, you went to the monastery in your valley, yeah, and that's you know a lot where your allegiance went, but then too. Uh, at least within the Gilu, you had the three big monasteries in the Lhasa area, and they were all attached uh, to, uh, or I should put it this way, the small monasteries in the remote areas were attached to different monasteries in the area of Lhasa. So if you went, um, you know, if you were going to be a young monk, uh, sometimes with the nuns too, you would start out at your local monastery and then you would go to the one in Lhasa that was affiliated with uh, your village. Or if uh, you had a large village and there were several monasteries uh, of the large monasteries that, that where people from your village went, when you got there, you would live in a comes in uh, kind of like a smaller unit of monks with people from your own area of Tibet. Yeah, that's how things were organized very much. So, um, yeah, so it's, it's an interesting thing uh, because on one hand, you see people going from one teacher to another, one tradition to another, and they do get very confused, and they don't settle down in practice. You know, On the other hand, you see people who are like, okay, I'm just with that, and I don't want to learn anything else. Okay, So, so you know, you have all sorts of people on this, on this spectrum, you know, and it depends a lot on how their teachers guide them, too you know, what their teachers teach. Um, I feel very fortunate, you know. I was always practicing within the Tibetan tradition for years and years and years because that, you know, 
after I met the Dharma, I went to Nepal. I was in India and Nepal for years. What really changed things for me was when I got to, sent to Singapore. Because I went to Singapore, and then there's all these different Buddhist traditions there. You know, so many of them. And different people from different countries. And at that time, at the time I went, um, there were very few temples or Dharma centers where people spoke English. So naturally, I became friends with the other monastics who spoke English. Yeah. So there was one uh, Theravada monk, and he and I would get together and laugh in English, you know. <laughs> yeah, uh, because we were about the, the only two foreigners teaching. There was, uh, there was a Tibetan monk there. He spoke some English, so I spoke with him. But that was about it at that time. But, you know, I was able to go to all these different temples and, and meet people and so on. And then, of course, you know, go, having to go to Taiwan for bhikshuni ordination, then I found out I had a quite, you know, close link with Chinese Buddhism. And then His Holiness gave me the assignment to put uh, things, you know, to learn about uh, Theravada and Chinese to put it in this series of books. And so then I, I learned that. And I found all of that incredibly helpful for my practice, you know. And yet at the same time, I'm quite clear in my practice tradition. You know, I love Jay Rinpoche. He makes sense to me. I follow that. My Vinaya tradition is, is following the Dharma Guptaka, and I have Chinese Vinaya teachers. And I don't find any problem with it at all. You know, and yet I have friends who have not taken the bhikshuni ordination because they want to take it in the Mulashravastavada that is practiced in Tibet because they feel a great uh, allegiance to Tibetan Buddhism and they don't want to take it from another system. They want to take it from the Mulashravastavada. You know, I you know I have no desire to do that. And if at some time uh, the Mulashravastava, they do uh, create bhikshuni ordination in the Mulashravastavada in Tibet, I'm not going to go become a Mulashravastavada nun. I'm quite happy the way I am. And it makes sense to me, you know. And yet I have friends who, you know, very much feel, who, who maybe did go to Taiwan and feel, oh, but they have it there, then I want to become a Mulashravastavada nun. But I don't, you know, I don't feel that at all. So, you know, we're all quite different, aren't we? But the thing is, whatever fits us as an individual, we should be open-minded and accepting of all the different traditions. Mm. Okay. In the past especially in the late 19th century in Tibet, and now in India as well, many Tibetan masters in principle, in principle, were non-sectarian. Yeah? Dilgo Kenze Rinpoche, his main teacher, Kenze Chuki uh, Lodro, and his main teacher, Chulshu Rinpoche, were all non-sectarian. They belonged to the Nyingma tradition, but from the time they were young, they received teachings from many different spiritual mentors. 
In the 1940s, a Gelu Lama in Amdo invited Dilgo Kenze Rinpoche to his area to give teachings, and Rinpoche also received teachings from this Gelu Lama. Okay, so those are examples of in Eastern Tibet of people uh, going beyond the sectarian limits. Okay, um, but what happened is then the remade tradition doesn't contain any people that are Gelu. It's mostly Nyingma and Sakya people. <laughs> anyway, the previous Dalai Lamas have practiced in multiple traditions. Okay, And this is important because if the Dalai Lama is going to be the spiritual head or even the governmental head of Tibetans, he can't just go with one tradition. And many people erroneously think that uh, the Dalai Lama is the head of the Galu tradition. He is not. Okay, Gandan Tripa is. Yeah, but the Dalai Lama is not the head of any of the four traditions. Okay, so the previous Dalai Lamas have practiced in multiple lineages. According to their biographies, the first three Dalai Lamas were basically Galu, but had a non sectarian approach and received teachings from all traditions. The fifth Dalai Lama received teachings from Sakya and Nyingma teachers although not as many from Kargi masters. The seventh Dalai Lama did not have much connection with Nyingma or Sakya, and the 13th Dalai Lama was in principle non-sectarian. He received Nyingma teachings as well as Gelu, and included in his writings is a text about Vajrakilaya, a deity central to the Nyingma tradition. One of my debate teachers, Lojo Chuni from Mongolia, was a great scholar and a good practitioner. His main teacher also practiced Nyingma, principally Hayagriva. He told Lojo Chuni that the 13th Dalai Lama mainly practiced two deities, Yamantaka and Vajrakalaya. So Yamantaka is from the glue, uh, Vajrakalaya was, was Nyingma. <coughs> When I was young, I was a strict Kalupa, but later became non-sectarian. One reason I recommended that people not worship the spirit Jukden is because I value the non-sectarian approach and the freedom to receive teachings from various spiritual mentors, and this spirit is opposed to this. My understanding of clear light has been greatly enhanced by hearing teachings on Dzogchen and Mahamudra in addition to Tsongkhapa's explanation of the different levels of mind. Now I read texts of all traditions, studying explanations on the same topic from different perspectives helps me immensely to gain a fuller understanding. In these days, when the Buddha Dharma is degenerating, non-sectarianism is essential. Quarreling and fighting in the name of religion is foolish and wrong. According to practitioners, the various explanations of a topic uh, come to one point. For example, in Dzogchen, sometimes you meditate on emptiness as an affirming negative, as taught in the text of the great scholar who has actual meditative experience. Although emptiness is a non-affirming negative, Due to this special way of practice, it may be useful to see it 
as an affirming negative. Knowing these different perspectives is helpful. One day we'll know for ourselves through our own experience. So what is... Okay, it's just explaining what affirming and non-affirming negatives mean, that footnote. Once an elderly monk requested me to teach bodhicitta according to a Kargyu text. I was not familiar with the text. Unable to fulfill his wish, I felt sad. Unfortunately, not many Tibetan lamas can teach all four Tibetan traditions. I hope in the future that both Tibetan and Western practitioners will remedy this. More knowledge about each other's tradition enriches our own practice. Practitioners should have as broad a perspective as possible without being scattered or confused by the multiplicity. I want to point out one thing what His Holiness said a few paragraphs earlier about, uh, you know, you may practice mainly according to one tradition, but if it uh, the the explanation of a particular point is lacking, then look in other traditions. Okay, and I was thinking about the way uh, in Chinese Buddhism the Vinaya is practiced, because in Chinese history you had five right five different Vinayas translated into Chinese, and so although the Dharma Guptaka after some centuries, became the primary one. The The emperor made an edict in 907, sometime around there, that, you know, everybody should be Dharmaguptaka. The way they, they practice Vinaya is, you know, mostly according to Dharmaguptaka. But when there's a point that isn't clear, they'll look in the other Vinayas. And so you'll see that in our texts, you know, when they're quoting different uh, texts, you know, the Mahasangika Vinaya says this, the Shavasta Vinaya says that. And so that's how they, you know, it's practiced in the Vinaya, and it's it's very wise, you know. And Venerable Daoshuang, uh, what century did he live in? Okay. <laughs> anyway, he was, I think he was maybe around 7th century, Something like that, sixth, seventh. Anyway, he studied widely all the different Vinayas, and he wrote a lot of the, the Vinaya texts that to this day are the basic ones that people follow. And in his writings, he'll cite from all the different Vinayas on a certain point. And so you can really see that uh, way of, um, you know, learning from all the traditions and having them con- complement each other. Okay, furthermore, Tibetan contact with the Zen, Pure Land, and Theravada traditions has not been adequate. During the years I've lived in exile, my relationship with the Pope and other Christian leaders has seemed closer than with Theravada, Zen, and Pure Land masters. And that's true, and it's really sad. Yeah. And in the Tibetan community in general, you know, they don't know people from other Buddhist traditions. They're starting now at uh, Central University of Tibetan Studies in Sarnath. They're holding some conferences now with uh, Vinaya people from different traditions. They're starting to have more of that kind of thing. And they'll go to, to the big Buddhist conferences uh, you know, that are located in different places. But, you know, if you don't 
Now, English is basically the, the language, the international language, even among Asians at an Asian conference. And if you don't know that, it's hard to talk to people from other traditions. You know, maybe you meet other Tibetans or the Chinese meet other t Chinese, or, and that's always good. But to go outside of that at conferences, you know, unless you know another language is difficult. And for the old masters, at least for the Tibetan old masters, they, they didn't learn English and they, they didn't even learn Hindi, you know, although they live in, in India. So they're, they're really much more limited in, in terms of who they can talk to. The younger generation is, is uh, you know, knows more English. But it's an issue in the monasteries because sometimes the older monks don't want the younger ones to learn English because they're afraid they will meet a nice Western woman and go get married and live in the West. Okay, uh, on a personal level, I would like to have more contact with other Buddhists. And for the good of Buddhism in the world, I would like all the Buddhist traditions to be closer. One reason for writing Buddhism, one teacher, many traditions, was to give Buddhists from all traditions accurate information about one another's doctrine and practices. In doing so, it becomes clear that the foundation for all our traditions is the same. We take refuge in the same three jewels. We see the world through the perspective of the four truths of the Aryas. And we all practice the three higher trainings and cultivate love, compassion, joy, and equanimity. Although we may approach some of these topics from different perspectives, that is no reason to criticize one another. In fact, that's the beauty of learning from the other traditions. Is that it really helps your own practice. Within Tibetan Buddhism, we find scholars refuting one another's position. We should examine why they are doing this and the reasons they use to support their positions. If we do not agree, we can respond with reasons backing our understanding. Doing this furthers our own and the other's understanding and is not disrespectful. When debating uh, the view in recognizing the mother, Changya Rope Dorje said, I am not disrespecting you. Please pardon me if you are offended. Debating ideas is different from being arrogant regarding our own tradition and denigrating others. Okay, they're very different. So debating ideas you do with the motivation so that everybody can learn, so that everybody can approach the truth. Yeah, um, and disagreement is part of it, and that's fine, and you can still get along. That's very different than being arrogant and having, you know, my tradition is like my home football team, you know, and rah, rah, my tradition, it's the best one, and your tradition is poof, you know. So we don't want to ever talk like that. Uh, while, while we may disagree with others, it is important to respect them and their traditions. Coming together as disciples of the same teacher we Buddhists have, will have closer relationships. 
we could speak with a common voice about difficult social and environmental issues and promote nonviolence and tolerance. This would definitely please the Buddha and benefit all sentient beings. Okay, so as is the custom when you finish a text, you read a little bit from the beginning again. Okay. Okay, I'm not going to start with the preface. Okay, we'll start with the first chapter. A spiritual path is essential to human life. Although advances in medicine, science, and technology have done much to improve the quality of human life, they have not been able to free us from all suffering and bring us secure and lasting happiness. In fact, in many cases, cases they have brought about new problems that we did not face in the past, such as environmental pollution and the threat of nuclear war. Therefore, external improvements in our world are not sufficient to bring the happiness and peace that we all desire. For this, internal transformation through spiritual development is essential. For this transformation to occur, we need to follow a spiritual path. Spiritual practice involves transforming our mind. Although our body is important, satisfying it does not bring lasting happiness. We must look inside ourselves, examine our attitudes and emotions to understand how profoundly they influence and shape our experiences. The Buddha commented, The world is led by mind and drawn along by mind. All phenomena are controlled by one phenomenon, mind. Mm 